0: It was pretty funny for me because I woke up this morning and I was having my coffee and checking Facebook and I realized it's Earth Day today. And um, as is often the case in this church, I've prepared a appropriate message for Earth Day, which is examining the time when the Lord destroyed the entire planet and looking ahead to the time when he will do it again. So uh, perfect timing, as always, right on time. You guys know me. We're in the midst of studying our way through the Bible, and we're doing it in the book of Genesis right now. And if you're just joining us, we're about to witness, as I said, the flood of Noah in Genesis chapter 7. Last week we studied the strange reasons why the Lord would need to send such a catastrophic event upon the earth. An event that would wipe out all life on the earth, save Noah's family, his son's families, and the animals on the ark. And if you missed that message, I encourage you to listen or watch it online. It'll give you some essential understanding as to what was taking place on the earth in the time period just before the flood. This week, the flood is going to hit the earth, and there's going to be lots of little insights for us as we journey through this chapter. There's not a cohesive theme, but just lots of little lessons for us along the way. And as always, I encourage you to be open to what the Holy Spirit might want to draw your attention to, specifically as we study through the word this evening. Let's jump in. Genesis chapter 7, verse 1, we read Then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. You'll recall that in the previous chapter, Genesis chapter 6, God told Noah that he was going to destroy the earth, but had a plan to save him, his children, and his children's wives. And that plan was to build an ark. And you'll also recall that back in Genesis 6 3, the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his day shall be 120 years. And so I just wanted to point it out real quick. That verse, contrary to what some have been told, is not a statement on how long people were going to live. That was God starting the countdown clock to the flood. From the moment the Lord said that it would be 120 years till judgment would come and wipe out all humanity that had rejected the Lord on the earth. So we're going to look at some questions as we make our way through this. Firstly, how long did it take Noah and his sons to build the ark? Well, there's two views on this. As I mentioned, 120 years before the flood came, we know that God told Noah it was going to be 120 years. We know God told him he was going to destroy the whole earth, and we know that God told him he had a plan to save him and that Noah needed to start preaching repentance to people there's a verse later in chapter 6 though verse 18 where the Lord says to Noah you shall go into the ark you your sons your wife and your son's wives with you so 120 years before the flood none of Noah's three sons had been born yet so there's two views on how long it took to build the ark the first view would be to say Praise God, God was giving Noah a promise 120 years before the flood came, not only that he would take care of him, but that he would have sons, they would have wives, and that all of them would be saved through the ark. That would be one view. The other view would be to say, well, 120 years before the flood, the Lord told Noah he was going to destroy the earth, had a plan to save him, and that Noah needed to start preaching repentance. Then 50 to 75 years before the flood, after Noah's three sons had been born and had all aged enough to have wives, then the Lord told Noah to start building the ark. I think you could make a case for both views. I don't really have an opinion on which one is correct. There's not really any way to know. But in either scenario, the Lord gave people 120 years to repent and turn to him from the time he announced judgment was coming. That's how long Noah was preaching to people. And in the New Testament in Second Peter, we're told that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And that whole time, Noah simply kept working at the tasks the Lord had given him to do. Can you imagine preaching to the same neighborhood for 120 years the same message and nobody ever responding? Can you imagine preaching repentance when you have to preach it like this? Guys, time is running out. In just 100 years, the world is going to be destroyed. You are running out of time. Wouldn't have been an easy assignment. Can you imagine how difficult the task of building the ark must have seemed when they started? On the day they started, when Noah laid out the plans that the Lord had given him and took a step back and looked at it, can you imagine? It took at least, we know, at a minimum, 50 years to build. And as we mentioned before, it had likely never even rained We know from Genesis chapter two that there was a different hydrological cycle on the earth in that time. There was actually water within the earth that would water the roots of all the plants. We know there was some type of evaporation that involved mist, but there's no indication that rain fell from the sky. There was this reservoir of water under the earth that watered the earth from below. And so here's Noah building the ark in his front yard, a world away from the nearest ocean, telling people that water is going to fall from the sky, which has never happened before, and that their only hope is to get into this magical boat that he's building that's also going to be full of all kinds of animals and things like that. It's not really that surprising that nobody believed him. And that whole time, there's no indication that the Lord was giving Noah regular updates. There's no mention that the Lord would check in and say, hey Noah, I know you're feeling the pressure from society around you. Just wanted to let you know the flood plan is still a go. No, no mention of that at all. Noah just had to keep going in faith. And Noah was faithful. He kept doing the things the Lord had told him to do. It's pretty safe to assume that Noah was exceedingly wealthy. He would have had to have been in order to acquire all the raw materials that would be needed for building the ark, and yet he was prepared to walk away from that wealth because God had told him to. Noah didn't argue with God. He didn't pepper him with questions, and he didn't complain. And as we read last week, the last verse of chapter 6 says, thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him, so he did. So he did. And What a lesson that is for us. How often we want a new word from the Lord, right? A fresh revelation, a new assignment, because simply being faithful over the long haul at the same things is very, very difficult. And so often the way that life works is not faithful than fruitful, but it's more like faithful, 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 then fruitful. And Noah understood that and he succeeded in being faithful to the Lord and is a great example for all of us. So make a note of this. Noah's walk with the Lord was revealed in his long-term faithfulness. Noah's walk with the Lord was revealed in his long-term faithfulness. He was in it for the long haul with the Lord day after day after day. Now the Bible doesn't tell us specifically what shape the ark was. The word ark in the original language literally means box and it's my personal belief that that's what it was. We know for certain that the ark had no sail, it had no propeller, it had no oars, it had no navigational equipment, and no steering wheel because God was going to pilot the ark. You know all the photos that you might see of Noah, he's there at the helm with the rudder Where's he going? Where is he going? The whole earth is flooded with water. But you see, pictures in children's Bibles like he's sailing super intently towards a destination. He's not going anywhere. The whole plan of the ark wasn't to get from point A to point B. When the floodwaters eventually rescind, he's pretty much in the same place, longitude and latitude wise, as he departed. The goal was simply to float, and then the Lord would place him where he needed to be. There was no need for him to be able to direct the ark anywhere. The ark was longer and bigger in cubic feet than any boat that has ever been constructed until you get to the late 19th century when steel began to be used for ships. And incredibly, or not incredibly, the specifications God gave Noah are perfect for seaworthiness. The length to width ratio was six to one, which is the optimal stability ratio for a ship. And if it was indeed box-shaped, its rectangular shape would have actually allowed it to turn almost 90 degrees without flipping over. It would have been incredibly stable. And the box shape would have also created a third more capacity than a vessel would have had had it had sloped sides. All in all, the Ark had around 100,000 square feet of floor space and about 1.5 million cubic feet of capacity. It would have had thousands of compartments on its three floors. It could carry the animals. In fact, it could have carried at least 125,000 sheep. And just when you think about how would all the animals fit there, just begin in your mind to think through the biggest animals in the world. And you'll find that the number of animals there are that are bigger than, say, a sheep is very, very small. You get through the few big ones, the elephants, the rhinos, the giraffes, but you very quickly get through the list of animals that are bigger than a sheep or a large dog. And you could have fit 125,000 sheep on the ark. Experts estimate the ark actually had at least double the space that was needed for all of the existing animals, species at the time. And so now around seven days before the rain began to fall, the Lord told Noah and his family to start loading up. And I see a parallel in that, that seven-day period, the seven-day warning God gives them to load up. I see a parallel there to the seven-year time period that will begin shortly after the rapture. There will be a final opportunity, as there was during those seven days, a last call for people to be saved. And just as in that seven-year period there will be many signs and wonders, the seven days before the flood were also full of signs and wonders. As we shall see, there would have been an incomprehensible parade of wild animals in a neat and orderly fashion in pairs streaming into the ark as the Lord directed them. And you might be thinking, you know, come on, Jeff, come on. I mean, if Noah's neighbors had seen, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Lion and Mr. and Mrs. Elephant streaming into the ark supernaturally under the direction of God, surely they would have listened to Noah and turned to the Lord. Not true. Think ahead in time to the book of Revelation and that time period of the great tribulation. Do you remember in Revelation six sixteen? We read that people will know that it is God raining down judgment on the earth, and yet they still will not cry out to them. You remember what they'll do instead? Instead, they'll cry out to the rocks to, quote, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne. You see, the issue is never a lack of evidence. The issue is never that there's not enough signs and wonders. The issue is ultimately an unwillingness to give one's life to Jesus. And it would have been no different in Noah's day. Wouldn't have mattered how spectacular the parade of animals were during those seven days when the ark was being loaded. They had an unwillingness to turn to the Lord. Verse 2. God keeps speaking and says, you shall take with you seven each of every clean animal, underline clean, a male and his female, two each of animals that are unclean, underline unclean, a male and a female, also seven each of birds of the air, male and female, and then underline this rest of the sentence, to keep the species alive on the face of all the earth. So here's an interesting question. How does Noah know which animals are clean and unclean? How does he know? Well, it seemed there's only two ways. Either the Lord told Noah, or the Lord had told other men that would have included. Noah's father and the information had been passed down to him and I'm inclined to believe the latter because it would seem that the sacrificial system was at least in some form put in place by God likely all the way back with Adam and the reason would be because the whole sacrificial system pointed to the ultimate sacrifice that would be sent. Jesus, the Lamb of God who died as the sacrifice for all sins for all time. God made the first example of sacrifice when he killed the animal to make clothing for Adam and Eve when they had been removed from the garden. God must have given sacrificial instructions to Adam, which Adam passed on to his sons, and we talked about how that would be the best explanation for why Abel's sacrifice was acceptable to God and Cain's was not. Abel followed the instructions of God, Cain did not. And then later in Genesis 8, we're going to see Noah make sacrifices when he comes out of the ark. And apparently that was why Noah needed to bring seven pairs of the clean animals on the ark so that he would have extra to sacrifice to the Lord after the flood. It wouldn't have been a good thing if Noah was making an entire species extinct every time he sacrificed to the Lord. And as we've mentioned before, it seems fairly clear The sacrificial system existed in some form before it was codified, before it was made official in the law when God gave it to Moses. The whole sacrificial system was symbolic. It pointed ahead to Jesus and it taught people that sin cannot be covered without the shedding of innocent blood, which Jesus would give in its ultimate form on the cross. So what was the point, though, in some animals being clean and unclean? What was the point? I mean, think about it, God made them all. He made them all. So why does he designate some as clean, some as unclean? And why is it that Peter receives a vision later on in the New Testament in which God reveals all animals to him and tells him none of them are clean or unclean? They're all good, they're all acceptable now. What's going on here? Well, God wanted his people to learn to make distinctions. He wanted them to learn that there is God's way And then there's every other way. And so what God began to do is he began to teach his people this concept through their diet, through their hygiene practices, through their marriage practices, through the way their families were run. Every area of life, God was trying to communicate to his people the need to make distinctions, that if you're going to follow God, you're going to have to determine between the things that are of God and the things that are not. So write this down. God designated some things as clean and others as unclean to teach his people to make distinctions between God's way and every other way. Distinctions between God's way and every other way. As a Christian parent, you'll likely encounter or have encountered some form of this questioning from your children at some point or at many points. Why can't we do that? Why can't we go there? Everybody else is doing it. And what's the right answer if you're a godly parent? The right answer is, well, we're not like everybody else. We're not trying to be like everybody else. We're different. We live for the Lord. And God was drilling this idea into his people by teaching them over and over, day after day, about the need to make distinctions between God's way and every other way. He was teaching them that to follow God in this world means being willing to live differently from the rest of the world. Have you noticed in our day and age the incredible trouble that believers and the church get into when we forget that following Jesus means living differently from the rest of the world? Have you noticed the mess we get ourselves into when we begin to try and convince ourselves that it shouldn't look that different? We can just live the same way everybody else is living. It's impossible. You can't follow God and follow the world. The Bible is full of distinctions, disturbing distinctions, but very clear distinctions. People are either saved or they're lost. People belong to God or they belong to Satan. No middle ground. There's the narrow way that leads to life or the broad way that leads to destruction. Those who are with the Lord, those who are against him. The choice is life or death, truth or lies, light or darkness, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Satan. The Bible is full of distinctions. And just as children need to be taught this early on in life, The Lord saw the need to teach his people and the human race this lesson very early in the life of the human race. And he was doing it all the way from the time of Adam. But the law was temporary. The system of the law was temporary. Why? Because after the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, believers were given something better than the law. They're given the Holy Spirit, and now it is the Holy Spirit and the Word of God that enables us and empowers us to make distinctions between living for God and living for the world. It's the Holy Spirit and the Word of God that enable us to live according to the ways of the Lord and the paths that lead to life. That's why Peter was told that all of these animals are clean now because we have the Holy Spirit and the word of God working in tandem to help us differentiate between God's way and every other way. Now, do you see at the end of verse three that the Lord says the reason at least one pair of the male and female of every species is coming into the ark? The reason for that is, I had you underline it, to keep the species alive on the face of all the earth. Do you see that? Now, I had you underline that because as there always are, There are liberal Bible commentators who try to play down the supernatural nature of the flood by claiming the flood was just a local event rather than a global flood. But that little bit of text at the end of verse 3 explicitly states that this was a global flood because it tells us that if any animal species was not on the ark, they were going to be extinct. They were going to be wiped off the face of the earth. We'll also find later that there's no way that a local flood could submerge mountains that were 17,000 feet high underwater. It couldn't happen. So did the animals hibernate in the ark? Were they fed? Truth is, we don't know. But we know that God took care of it. We know space-wise, there was more than enough room for all the animals. But also keep in mind, let's take dogs for example. God didn't need to have a pair of every kind of dog on the ark. What he needed to have on the ark was the genetic information necessary to produce every breed of dog that would ever exist on the earth after the flood. Because remember this, this is what happens. The further you get from Eden, the more corruption gets into the genetics of both animals and people. And so, how do traits change in dogs? We all know that, however, it worked, every species of dog in the world goes back to one mommy dog and one daddy dog. At some point in there, that's what you get. Just as every human being in the world goes back to what? One man and one woman. Adam and Eve. So what happens is you have two dogs. Then some corruption gets into the genetics and suddenly a dog is born with a genetic corruption in its DNA coding that causes it to have hair that's a little bit longer. And that trait gets passed on to its offspring, to its offspring, and these corruptions enter and begin to produce these different changes. And then what happens? Well, somebody moves to a place with really cold winters and they bring all their dogs with them. And they got their little chihuahuas and then they got their husky type dogs. Guess which ones make it through the winter? The ones with the long hair, right? The other ones just die out. And so what happens over time? Well, what happens is you end up with only long-haired dogs in very cold climates, because they're the only ones that can survive. So they're the only ones that reproduce offspring. And that's not evolution, that's just adaptation, and we have no problem with that as believers. This is why you end up with chihuahuas in Mexico, and huskies in Alaska, because they can only survive in those specific climates. And the same thing happens as anomalies and corruption entered the genetics of humans. Some human beings are born with darker skin than others just through different genetic corruption. And what happens? You're living in a hot place and all the pale people like me are suddenly getting skin cancer. We're getting melanomas and having health problems and so we're not reproducing and we're dying younger and we're not able to work the land and so we're dying sooner. And so what happens? What happens? people who have darker skin do better in hotter, more sunny climates. What does the ginger do to survive? Well, he has to go to a rainy, miserable place like the UK and irk out a living there. And that's why all the gingers end up in that part of the world. That's sort of how it happens. It's not evolution. It's just adaptation. You're going to do well in some places. You're going to do bad in other places. So God didn't need to have a pair of every dog. He just needed to have the first Mr. and Mrs. Dog because in their DNA coding was all the information necessary to produce all the species of dogs that we have today. And that cuts down dramatically on the number of animals that would have needed to be on the ark. He just needed an original pair of each species. He didn't need a pair of every variation of every species. But we know that the clean animals were brought for sacrifices, not only because that's what Noah does after the flood, but I need to issue a correction on myself here, but because at this time, they're actually still vegetarians. I messed that up in an earlier message when I said that they began to eat meat after they were removed from the garden. It's actually only in Genesis 9 when we get there, after the flood, that God is going to allow people to eat meat. So they're vegetarians all the way up to here. But when they land on the earth after, God's gonna say, you can eat meat now. And again, it's not a good look if every time you have a barbecue, you're wiping out an entire species from the face of the earth. You know, you can picture Mrs. Noah coming along and saying, did you just barbecue the elephants? Yeah, is that bad? Oh, so bad, so bad. So they brought extra so they would have food to eat as well afterwards. Now here's an interesting question. Interesting question. How could kangaroos, for example, How'd they get to the ark from Australia? I've heard some people ask this. How'd they hop all the way? I mean, they're adorable, but they can't hop that far. Well, just remember, this is a pre-flood world. It doesn't look anything like what we have today. There's likely no continents yet, just one big landmass. And we also know that every single animal on the earth was represented in the garden. How do we know that? Because it says that the Lord brought them all before Adam for Adam to name So we know that they were all there. There was a globally consistent climate. They were all over the globe. But we have no idea what the land mass was that made up habitable land on the earth at that time. So it's not really an issue. There truly is, as I was mentioning the genetic issues here, there really is only one race on the earth, the human race. And we tend to use the word race when we really should be using the word culture because there are different cultures on the earth, but there's really not different races. The genetic variations between even black and white, Hispanic, anything you go, is in the hundredths of a percent. The variation is so small. And even in Acts 17, 26, I put this on your outline, it says, and he, God, has made from one blood, underline one blood, every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, from one blood. That's literally what the Bible teaches. So how did we end up so divided as the human race? Well, that's the story of the Tower of Babel. We're going to get to that later on in Genesis. In Genesis, But to sum up the number of creatures that would have been in the ark, incredibly, all the variation we have in animal species today comes from what was on the ark. And the best estimates are that there were only somewhere between 18,000 and 40,000 species on the ark. That's it for all life that we have on this planet today and have had since the ark. Well, the Lord keeps speaking to Noah and he says, For after seven more days I will cause it to rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, and I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. Throughout the Bible, some of you will know that the number 40 appears again and again in relation to judgment, trials, and difficulty. The rains of the flood fell for 40 days. The Israelites wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness a time period of 40 years. Days, Verse five, and, and then I have this underlined every time it shows up. Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood waters were on the earth. Real quick, the Bible you'll notice takes pains to help us understand that the flood was a literal event. It gives the ages of those involved. It gives us the length that the rain lasted for. It will tell us exactly how long it took for the flood waters to recede. All points and little bits of information that are completely unnecessary if this is just a myth designed to teach a moral lesson. Over and over again in the flood account we're given the kind of specific details that are only necessary for a historical account. You don't put this sort of stuff in parables or fairy tales. Verse seven, so Noah with his sons, his wife, and his son's wives went into the ark because of the waters of the flood. Of clean animals, of animals that are unclean, of birds and of everything that creeps on the earth, two by two they went into the ark to Noah, male and female as God had commanded Noah. The Bible's very straightforward. The animals came to Noah. Noah didn't go out with some kind of magical butterfly net and catch all the animals he didn't have to do that they were brought to Noah by the Lord they took their place in the ark none of them ate each other or caused any kinds of problems how's that possible it's just real simple God is directing the entire operation all we're saying is that the one who created all of these animals has the power to control them it's a pretty reasonable assertion God's the creator of the universe and he, he can do what he wants. And if you don't believe that God has that kind of power, then you've got much bigger issues you need to examine than the story of the flood. Verse 10, and it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, here we see the specificity again, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were opened. The phrase, the fountains of the great deep were broken up, seems to refer to this reservoir of water that was under the earth at the time and watered the earth from underneath. Here, that reservoir breaks open all over the globe and water gushes forth all over the land. And the phrase, the windows of heaven were opened, would seem to refer to that water canopy that surrounded the earth creating a globally consistent climate and things like that and here that water canopy falls to the earth in what is in all likelihood the first rain in recorded history so really understand what's happening here because again if you were raised in the church or you have kids you've seen the children's bible thing and we generally just think what happens is it starts raining and no one them get in the ark and wait and all that happens is it just rains it just rains that's that's not what would have happened In one day, it says the earth rips open, right? So what we're talking about are the tectonic plates of the earth severing, the earth opening up all over the globe, shifting. You're talking massive, massive earthquakes. This water begins gushing forth, but at the same time, there would have been magma and global volcanic activity, which is what happens whenever you start moving tectonic plates very, very seriously, shooting debris and lava and boiling water as it comes into contact with the magma up into the atmosphere, and all of this activity all over the globe somehow disrupts this water canopy which begins to break up and fall to the earth in the form of rain. And as the earth rips open, waters begin to rush into these gaps creating these new giant areas of water and ocean and catastrophic tidal waves all over the globe and continents are literally beginning to move even as the water is rising and and, and drift apart here. And as the water canopy falls, the whole global climate changes almost instantly, and the earth that had no magnetic poles suddenly has magnetic poles as things get changed, and we suddenly have a north and south pole that freeze almost instantly, freezing tropical vegetation and animals in place, while others are buried by layer upon layer of mud as the tectonic plates shift on top of each other. This one day would have been Absolutely catastrophic on a scale that we simply have no reference for. We have no reference for this. The whole earth, the whole earth erupting with water and fire and earthquakes. It would have been catastrophic. Noah literally stepped off one planet when he got onto the ark and would step foot onto a completely different planet. When he got off, that's the type of trauma and devastation that took place to the entire surface of the earth. Verse 12, and the rain was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them, entered the ark. And I want you to underline that phrase on the very same day, on the very same day, because I want you to see that the same God who is judging the earth and causing all this devastation is also on that same day graciously taking care of Noah and his family, saving and protecting them. And we have the choice whether we deal with God according to his grace or according to his wrath. It's the same God and we get to choose the way that we interact with him. I'd recommend grace, it's way, way better. So Mr. and Mrs. Noah and their three sons and their wives all entered the ark and then in verse 14 it says, they and every beast after its kind, all cattle after their kind, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind and every bird after its kind, every bird of every sort, And they went into the ark to Noah, two by two, of all flesh, in which is the breath of life. So those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. And and then underline this, the Lord shut him in. The Lord shut him in. This is such a perfect picture of the mystery of salvation and eternal security. Noah would not have known that destruction was coming unless the Lord had told him unless the Lord had revealed it to him. Even then, Noah would have had no way of surviving that coming destruction unless the Lord made a way for Noah to be saved and provided him with the instructions of how to walk in that way. Noah would not have been able to orchestrate all the events necessary to survive the coming destruction unless God had walked with him and worked miracles all along the way. Noah would not have been able to seal himself in the place of safety, the ark, unless the Lord had sealed him in by closing it and sealing it from the outside. Noah's part in all of this was believing God when God spoke to him, obeying God by giving his life to the work God gave him, and then entering the ark by its one door when the Lord called him to. Just as we would be completely lost unless the Lord had revealed our sinful condition to us, the reality that we were destined for death, and were hopeless unless he had made a way for us to be saved and revealed that way to us. The Lord's done all of the work, but we still need to exercise our free will by entering into a relationship with him through the one door, the one way, Jesus, by believing, obeying him, and trusting him to keep us in the place of salvation, and praise God, he does, he does. So write this down. God provided everything Noah needed to be saved, but Noah still had to believe and obey God. God provided everything Noah needed to be saved, but Noah still had to believe and obey God. Noah and his family were sealed in the ark. There was no way for them to open the door and escape and change their minds. They couldn't jump off the top deck, it would have been way too high. Jesus said, and I put it on your outlines Jesus said, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Only Jesus can save you, and only Jesus can keep you saved. Verse 17 Now the flood was on the earth 40 days. The waters increased and lifted up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and greatly increased on the earth and the ark moved about on the surface of the waters. What a terrible, catastrophic, terrifying, amazing, incredible and awesome time this was. The biggest floating structure ever built up to that time. Rain nobody had ever even seen before and the destruction of of the entire planet They couldn't see land anywhere. Everything was underwater. They're floating along in a zoo guided by only God and living in the hope of a better world and a new life. And think about this. This thought is mind-blowing. The entire future of the world was huddled under that one roof in the ark. The entire future of the world was huddled under that one roof of the ark. Verse 19, and the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth and all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed 15 cubits upward and the mountains were covered. And and then underline this, all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds and cattle and beasts and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth and every man, all in whose nostril was the breath of life, the spirit of life. All that was on the dry land died. So he destroyed, and then underline again, all living things which were on the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping thing and bird of the air. They were destroyed from the earth. And then underline this sentence only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive. The Bible couldn't be any more clear that this is a global event. The waters rose 15 cubits, roughly 24 feet above the highest mountain peaks, which would have been over 17,000 feet at that time. If this was a local flood, why didn't God just tell Noah to leave the area? I think he could have covered some distance in 50 years. You know, when God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, that was a local event. He told Lot to get his family out of there. He didn't tell Lot to build a bunker. And why save the animals in the ark if only the Mesopotamian Valley was going to be affected? No, this was a global flood, which is why it's mentioned in almost every culture's mythology. As of 17 years ago, we knew of over 270 different nations, races, and tribes that have a mythology of a great flood, including the famous Babylonian Gilgamesh epic. But of all these 270 mythologies that we're aware of, 88% of them say there was, in the midst of the flood, a favored family that was spared. 70% of them say survival was by means of boat. 95% say the sole cause, the only cause of this great catastrophe that came on the whole world was a flood. 66% of these traditions say that this flood came because of man's wickedness. 67% of these traditional flood stories say that animals were also saved. And 57% of the stories say the survivors ended up on a mountain. Many of them mention some form of Noah's name, like the Hawaiian legend of Nu'u. Many of them speak about birds being sent out. Many of them speak about a rainbow. And many of them say that only eight people were saved. One of the greatest reasons the story of the flood is in the Bible is so that we will believe God when he says he's going to destroy the earth in the future. You see, we're supposed to look at the story of the flood and realize God's not bluffing. He's done it before. As intricate and amazing as the world is, God will not hesitate when it's time to destroy it. His concern is his family those who love him and desire to be a part of his kingdom. Understand this, God does not have a sentimental attachment to the earth or even to the universe. He says in his word, he's gonna destroy it all. He has a sentimental attachment to his family. And that's why his plan is to build a better world or perhaps better worlds for his family, which includes you and I. No matter how you slice it, God has sentenced this planet to a very short life. There was about 1,650 years between Eden, Adam and Eve, and the flood. And we've been at it for about 4,500 years since the flood. The earth is a brief, theater in the midst of eternity on which the drama of redemption is played out for the purpose that God might display his grace and his glory and gain a bride for his son Jesus the church but God will not hesitate to destroy it all in an instant when in his mind in his judgment the fullness of the saints has come in that time when everyone who's going to be a part of the church is God's patience is not going to last forever When judgment comes upon the earth, it will be harsh, it will be swift, and it will be total. And his judgment will be inarguable. He's done it once. And that's supposed to help us understand that he will do it again. But until he does, we live in a time of grace, and that's why we shouldn't take his grace lightly. Verse 24, and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. So the idea is that the waters kept rising for 150 days in all, even though there was only rain for the first 40 days. And this was happening because all that water that was stored within the earth was still being released upon the earth during these five months. Although Noah heard the voice of the Lord telling him to go into the ark, there's no record of God speaking to Noah while he was on the ark. In fact, it would seem that he didn't hear from God for 375 days. And maybe you can relate to that. Maybe 375 days ago, God was speaking to you and communicating with him was was easy, it was exciting, and it was fresh. And the Lord gave you some instructions, and now you're hearing nothing. And you're bouncing around some rough seas and wondering why God isn't speaking. Let me just be real. I don't know that there's any Christian who doesn't wish that God would speak more frequently than he does. But unlike some people, God doesn't repeat himself over and over and over. He doesn't do that. Not because he's callous, not because he doesn't care, but because a more important process is unfolding, which the Lord talks about through the Apostle Paul in Romans 5. This should be on your outlines. Where it's written, we also glory in tribulations and difficulties, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now, hope does not disappoint. Hope does not disappoint. What that's saying there is that when you go through difficult times, your usual response is to whine, to complain. But eventually you see God come through, and you start to realize that he's always going to come through. And it's not usually that you learn that lesson, but then God takes you on to another phase where he takes you through some difficulties and some tribulations where maybe there's nothing you can do. And you know what's so funny is how often we we say things like, oh, you know, I'm just learning to rest in the Lord. And we say that like it's something that we're doing when what we really mean is that, you know, I'm really completely out of ideas and completely exhausted and I have no idea what to do so I'm doing nothing right now. That's what's what's really going on, right? But we're like, I'm learning to rest in the Lord. And so God gives us no choice. What do the Psalms say? He maketh me lie down in green pastures. Right, We all have this beautiful picture of someone reclining. I think the picture is more like the shepherd who's got his stick on the sheep and he's pushing them down like you will rest here. And that's what the Lord does sometimes. He puts us in a situation, there's nothing else we can do. What's Noah gonna do while he's on the ark? What's he gonna do? You just gotta be patient. But then in that patience, when you give up and you let go and then you eventually see God move, usually, hopefully, Sometimes after decades, you begin to realize, you know, there might be something to this whole God is faithful business. There might be something to this whole he never leaves us or forsakes us business. I think it's true, I think it's true. And so what we learn from that eventually is that in these times of difficulty, we learn that God's still with us and that good is coming, good is coming. That's what hope is. It's the absolute belief, the knowledge that good is coming. God is doing something good. I was listening to some pastors and they were saying, just what I said, God is teaching Noah patience on this boat. But, but I thought about it and I said, you know, I don't think that's what God is doing because Noah's already gone through decades of learning the lesson of patience, right? I don't know that he has to learn that. He's been preaching for 120 years and nobody's listening. He spent 50 years building the ark in his front yard. I think when he's on the ark, I'm sure there's enormous psychological trauma, but he's probably thankful for the break. And we're like, 375 days. And he was probably like, already? Just a year? Oh, that's that's great. He's used to things lasting 120 years. He's used to things lasting 50 years. Just over a year would have been nothing for Noah. Why? Because he had learned over those decades perseverance, and he had learned to hope in the Lord. He had learned to hope in the Lord. And the reason that I believe Noah and his family didn't lose their minds like most of us would have if we had witnessed the destruction of the entire planet was because they had learned this perseverance. They had learned to trust the Lord over those decades leading up to the flood. When we start speaking a lack of faith, when we start speaking doom and despair, it's always because we've lost hope. Many times the sins that we get most deeply ensnared in are because we've we've lost hope. I'm never gonna be married. Might as well make a bad decision. I'm never going to be happy, so why not go try some of the things that the world is offering? Why not cut a corner? Why not cheat? Why not steal a little bit? It's because we've lost hope. And the solution is always to think back to all the times God has come through for us, all the promises he's kept and rediscover that hope. And if you haven't had those experiences, God's working on you right now, I guarantee it. Learn to be patient and develop that perseverance. If you're one of those people who are in one of those places right now in your life, be patient, be patient. School is in session, and the lesson is hope. And I promise you'll learn it if you hold on, so hold on. Write this down. The Lord spent decades training Noah and his family in the lesson of patience, patience, so that in the midst of the flood, they would know how to hold on to hope. They'd know how to hold on to hope. And I wanna talk to the dads for just a minute, just a minute. The Lord told Noah to build the ark so that he, his wife, his three sons, and their wives could be safe from the flood. In other words, God told Noah to expect that decades in the future, his sons and their wives would be in the place of salvation on judgment day. He told Noah, expect that. Could this be why the blood on the doorposts in Egypt on the night of the first Passover didn't just save the one who applied it, but the entire house? Could this be why in Acts 10, the Holy Spirit didn't just fall on Cornelius, but on his whole house? Could this be what Paul meant when he said to the Philippian jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household? Could this be what the writer of Hebrews referred to when he wrote, by faith, Noah being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his Household. I believe so. I'm not suggesting that when dad gets saved, everyone else gets thrown in for free. That's part of the deal. I'm not suggesting a new doctrine. I'm, I'm just suggesting a dynamic. By faith, Noah prepared a place for his family on the ark. At a minimum, as we said, decades before the time came. And so dad, I would just say, we're called to pray and live and speak in faith always saying, I'm believing that my sons and daughters and their spouses and my grandchildren are gonna be on the ark of salvation. They're gonna be with the Lord. Now, obviously, every man, woman, and child has to make their own decision regarding salvation, but it sure seems as though they can do that a lot more easily when they grow up seeing the reality of faith lived out before them just as Noah's children and family watched him pounding away on the ark day after day after day. When it was time for Noah and his family to enter the ark, Noah went first. He didn't say, there's the ark, kids. You go ahead, I'll catch up. Noah didn't say, you, you guys should go into the ark. You need it right now in life. I've got some other stuff I've got to work on, but you guys go. No, no he led the way. He was the first in. He set the example. He set the tone for his family. And that's the key. Mom and dad. Your kids are watching to see who you really are, to see if your faith is really real. It's having a massive impact on them. So think with me. When David was a young man, he killed a giant. And when you get into 2 Samuel 23, it gives that list of David's mighty men who later on in his life came and surrounded him when he was in exile fleeing for his life from King Saul. And you know what it says in that list of mighty men? It lists multiple men who specifically, quote, also killed giants. Also killed giants. This means that even though those men didn't even see David kill Goliath, They became giant killers because of their connection to David. Now contrast this with Saul, who was intimidated by Goliath. In Saul's catalog of mighty men, not one is listed as a giant killer. Why? Because Saul wasn't. Dad, if if you'll be a man of the word, watch your kids grow up to be the same. If you'll be a man of prayer, watch your kids grow up to pray. If you'll be bold with the gospel, your kids will too. We all know the truth that that who we are deeply affects what our kids become. And so we have to make the decision about who we want our kids to be. Do we want them to be spiritual cowards who get wiped out and get intimidated by the enemy? Or do we want to raise giant killers who overcome by faith and are successful in the things of God? Parents, lead the way lead the way. Your kids will follow. And if they're not doing it right now, be patient. Be patient. Persevere. Keep hammering away day after day at the work God has given you. Keep praying. Keep getting into the Word. Keep living it out. Keep following Jesus. In time, you'll be amazed what the Lord will do. You'll be amazed. The flood of Noah has has so much to teach us, but most importantly, it teaches us about the true reality of our situation. It proves that sin will ultimately be judged, and not only will God be the judge, but He's also the only means of salvation. Contrary to what the world and even parts of the church declare, there's not multiple ways to be saved, there's not multiple ways to God, there's only one door. Only one door to the place of salvation, and it's Jesus Christ. Those who rejected the Lord died in the flood, period. Those who turned to the Lord were saved. And There were only eight people who turned to the Lord, only eight, and those eight people were saved. Everybody else perished, everybody else. That's how serious sin is. There's no hope to be saved from sin apart from God. The flood also teaches us that when push comes to shove, God is really able to distinguish those who belong to him from those who don't. He's actually able to make that call and that judgment. When God offers forgiveness, when God extends grace, when God opens up an invitation to be part of his family, we shouldn't take it lightly. And when we understand the alternative, we won't take it lightly. God said, I'm going to destroy the earth in 120 years, and then he did it. And God has told us he's coming for his church and a great time of tribulation will follow shortly. And guess what? He's going to do it. Once again, exactly as he said. It's interesting to me that everyone on earth fell into one of three groups actually at the time of the flood. There were those who died in the flood, those who were preserved through the flood, Noah and his family. And then there was somebody else who wasn't mid-flood or post-flood, but was was a pre-flood believer. Enoch, remember him? And he was taken to be with the Lord before the flood, before the flood hit the earth. And the same will be true in these end times that we're living in. And again, I highly recommend not actually being in the ark when the flood comes, but being like Enoch and being taken to be with the Lord before the flood even comes. That's far better than having to go through it. In Genesis 6.14, it says that the Lord's instructions were that the ark be covered in pitch. The word that's translated there is pitch. And in the original Hebrew, the word that's used there is kopher. And interestingly enough, though, every other time that word kopher is used in the Old Testament, it's used to mean atonement, atonement, the settling of a debt. And the picture is that God's means of salvation for Noah and his family, the ark, had to be covered in atonement, a debt being settled. We know that the debt in question is our sin debt, which was paid for and settled by the death of Jesus on the cross. Our ark ultimately is Jesus. We are in Christ It's on your outlines in Romans 8.1. It says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are what? In Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. And again, just for revealing to us the reality of our situation. And Lord, it's sobering to realize that the day really will come When again, you will judge the earth, the whole planet. And your patience with sin will not last forever. But Lord, we also thank you because we know that you will not allow things to remain broken forever. This means that the day really is coming when you're gonna make all things right and make all things new. Righteousness really is going to rule on the earth under the reign of Jesus. That day is really going to come. And Father, we're so thankful because as we look at the story, we see ourselves completely unaware of our predicament, completely unable to save ourselves, needing you to provide a way and to lead the way for us. And that's what you've done, Lord. You've come and you've saved us and our only part has been believing in what you've done and thanking you for what you've done. So thank you for saving us, God. Thank you for making a way where there was no way. Father, I pray especially for every parent in this room that you will once again empower us in a fresh way by your word and by your spirit uh, to model what it means to follow you to our children, that they would grow up seeing moms and dads who love you and whose lives are all about serving you and walking with you. Lord, we thank you in faith for every child, every grandchild being in eternity with us in your presence. We thank you in faith for saving them. We thank you that you are working on those who are not saved right now. Lord, help us to do our part in prayer and in faith continuing to persevere and to hold on to hope that, Lord, you love them a million times more than we do. Thank you for that, God. Just be still before the Lord and and allow him to maybe just illuminate the part of today's study that he most wants you to pay attention to and revisit that and ask the Lord what he wants to say to you. Listen as he speaks to you.